Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Verse 10. Notice that the one who fears the Lord is the one who also obeys the voice of his servant. You can't have one without the other. Whether you truly fear God, whether you truly honour and revere God, will be determined by whether you obey the servant whom he has sent. In these latter chapters of Isaiah, we find this servant being referred to frequently. Sometimes the Lord speaks of his servant in the third person. The Lord declares, Behold, my servant. But sometimes it's actually the servant himself who is speaking. And that's what we have here in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. The servant is the one speaking. These verses have come to be known as the third servant song. There are four such songs in Isaiah. And although they've come to be known as the servant songs, there's really no indication that they're meant to be sung. They are prophecy in poetic language. They are essentially poems embedded within Isaiah's prophecy where the Lord is telling his people about the servant he will send to bring deliverance. And in doing this, in telling the people about the servant, God is building up a picture for his people of what the Messiah will be like and what he will come to do, the long-awaited deliverer of Israel. And so there are four such songs in the latter chapters of Isaiah. The first one is found in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, where the Lord introduces his servant to us. And then in the second and third songs, it's the servant himself who is speaking. The second song is chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. And then the third song is chapter 50, verses 4 to 9, which is where we just read from. And then, of course, the fourth song is from chapter 52, verse 15, through to the end of chapter 53. The song speaking famously of the suffering that the servant will endure. This morning, it's not so much the third servant song we're going to look at, but we're actually going to look at the epilogue to it in verses 10 to 11. You see, when this servant is proclaimed, a response is demanded of you. And so in verses 4 to 9, here we have the Lord's servant speaking. Here we have him telling us about his life and what he will come to do. And immediately afterwards, right after this, the question is asked, who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? This servant demands a response 
from you. Now, I hope each one of us is crystal clear about who this servant is. I hope as you read these verses about the servant, about what he says about himself, I hope you're taken in your mind to the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. I hope you're taken in your mind to the other parts of the New Testament where these verses are quoted and alluded to. Because the understanding of the New Testament writers is that this servant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that is our understanding as well. This is the servant God has brought to this world. And we can only truly come to know God through him. And so, in these verses in Isaiah, we are painted a beautiful picture of the Lord's servant who comes to suffer in order to save. And then, we have this picture fleshed out and fulfilled for us in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in these verses, verses 4 to 9, it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us, telling us what he is like, what he will do, centuries before he came into this world as a man. And in verse 10, immediately after, God commands us to obey him. He calls us to come and follow him. The call he makes is to make him the Lord of your life, to repent of your sins against God and to trust him for forgiveness and to be made right with God. To trust in his suffering and death, to make atonement for your sins and that through his suffering that he has won eternal life for his people which he gives to all who call upon him. We're called to come and to trust our lives into this servant's hands. God has appointed him to do this, to come and deliver his people from sin and death, to have life in him. And so we're called to come and trust the servant, to commit our lives to him, to surrender our lives to him, to his lordship. But what will it then look like for us to follow the servant in this life? What is it going to look like day by day for us as we journey through this world following Jesus Christ? (coughs) Well, what we're going to focus on today is the second half of verse 10. Because the reality is that following Jesus Christ means that sometimes in this life we will walk in darkness. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Sometimes as Christians we will walk in darkness and we will have no light. What does that mean? Well let's start with what it doesn't mean here. 
Usually, when the Bible speaks about walking in darkness, it refers to unbelievers. Darkness is used to describe the state of the Gentile nations. It's used to describe those who have no knowledge of God, who are darkened in their understanding. It's used to describe those who are cut off from God, walking blindly in sin and having his judgment upon them. That's what darkness often means in the Bible. Likewise, light is used to describe knowing God and enjoying his favour. Light is used to illustrate living uprightly. Light is used to depict moral purity. God is light. In him there is no darkness. God has shone into our hearts the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of his Son. And in John chapter 8, Jesus even said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So what does it mean here when Isaiah tells us that the one who fears the Lord and obeys Christ will walk in darkness? Well, here, Isaiah is not speaking about being cut off from God and having no knowledge of him. He's not speaking about living a sinful lifestyle. He's not speaking about being under God's judgment. Isaiah is clearly speaking about people who are truly in the light, but all around them there appears to be only darkness. You see, this darkness being referred to is tests of faith. This is the darkness of testing. How can we be sure of that? Well, just look at the next line in verse 10. In the very next line we are told to trust in God and to rely on him. You fear the Lord, you're obeying Christ. There's darkness all around you. What are you to do? Keep going, trusting in the Lord. See, friends, this is a God-appointed darkness. This is a divine withholding of that sense of light from those who are truly in the light. Two helpful categories would be to speak of the darkness of circumstances and the darkness of feelings. And so we're going to consider each of these in turn now. The darkness of circumstances and the darkness of feelings, which I'm sure are things we've all experienced. And they're very much related, aren't they? Because our circumstances often have the greatest effect on our feelings. How we feel is often determined by what is going on in our lives. John Calvin describes this darkness as afflictions by which the children of God are almost always overwhelmed. Afflictions by which the children of God are almost always overwhelmed. It's not speaking about little annoyances going on. 
but things that bring you to the very end of yourself and threaten to overwhelm you. That's the darkness that is being spoken of here. The darkness of circumstances. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world in which God releases his judgments upon. We experience the effects of sin in us and all around us. And so there are various circumstances that can bring dark clouds upon our minds. Circumstances of health, both physical and mental. Circumstances of family and all the burden and the concern we have for those who are dearest to us. Circumstances of work and the stress and the pressure that comes with that. Circumstances of church. When there are things going on in our church family. Those who we live in fellowship with week by week. At times, our circumstances can cause us to despair of life. And to be filled with doubt and fear that we've removed ourselves from God's love and from God's favour. Isn't that a question that often jumps right into our minds when we are experiencing trials? Does God really love me? Have I done something in some way to remove myself from his love? And that leads us on to the darkness of feelings. You have no felt comforts from God. Your Christian walk is frustrated. You find your spiritual desires are waning. You pray, you read your Bible, you worship, you listen to sermons. But you don't feel that God is near you or that he loves you. At times in the past you did. And these things were meat and drink to you and how they filled you. As God richly blessed these means of grace to you. And you were on fire. But it's not the same now. You do the same thing. But it feels different. You may find your heart wandering from God to idols. You may find you have, you're beginning to develop stronger feelings for other things. You get more enjoyment and satisfaction out of other things than you do from your walk with God. You feel that your heart is an arid desert and there's no comfort or excitement coming from knowing God and you may be experiencing sore temptations to fill that void with other things forbidden things listen to how Matthew Henry describes this felt sense of darkness in a Christian their evidences for heaven 
are clouded. Their joy in God is interrupted. The testimony of the Spirit is suspended. The light of God's countenance is eclipsed. Can you identify with any of these things? Boys and girls, are you listening? Have you ever been in your house and there's been no lights on? Maybe you've woken up in the middle of the night and it's all dark all around. It's quite scary, isn't it? You can't see anything and you don't know if mummy or daddy are nearby. What we're doing this morning is we're looking at a part of the Bible where God's telling us that sometimes it's like that for us. Sometimes it's dark all around. And we don't know if God's nearby and it can be really scary. And we can wonder where he is. But I'm sure you know, boys and girls, that if you wake up in your room in the middle of the night and you're scared in the darkness, you start shouting for mummy and daddy. And they come, don't they? They come through to your room. And they give you a cuddle. And they settle you down again and you go back to sleep. And what we're discussing, what we're thinking about as grown-ups, is that sometimes it feels like that with God. It feels like he's not there. But what the Bible tells us is that we can know he's always, always there. You see, no true Christian can ever lose their salvation. Let's face it, if we could lose our salvation, we would. In a heartbeat. If it was left to us, we'd be gone. But ultimately, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God. And he will never forsake, cast off or abandon his people. But he may chastise us. And he may do so by removing that sense of his presence and favour from us for a season. He may do so for sins we have committed. He may remove that sense from us so that we don't feel like we're in his love and favour. But what we have to remember is that if and when he does that, he gives this to us as medicine. He does so as our father who loves us. He does so to make us repent and seek him again so that we see how empty sin is and how awful not to be near God and so that we're reminded how wonderful it is to know him and how foolish we were to squander such a privilege for sin. God does this to grow us in holiness to grow us in devotion to him. And so that darkness we experience may at times come as a chastisement. It may be God's hand of rebuke upon us. But not always. Sometimes, but not always. Darkness does not necessarily mean you're experiencing God's displeasure or that you have missed his will. Remember, it wasn't Job's sin, it was his uprightness 
that meant God was going to test and strengthen his faith. God allowed Satan to bring such calamity upon his life. Not because of Job's sin, but because of the holy, devout life he was living. So that Job's faith would be confirmed and strengthened when he was stripped of everything. So we need to, what we need to grasp is that it is God who takes us through the darkness. <clears throat> darkness of various forms. And he does so for good purposes. And what are we called to do in the midst of the darkness? What are we called to do when we are in this tunnel? Well, verse 10 tells us, Who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. That's the instruction we're given. But this instruction also comes with an example. Perhaps if you have to build something or cook something in your instruction manual that you're using, in the cookbook that you're using, isn't it helpful when you've got pictures alongside the instructions? You get the instructions written down, they tell you what to do. But then the pictures also tell you how to do it. And they tell you what it's supposed to look like. And that's what we have here. We have the instruction in verse 10 of what to do when we're in darkness. But we also have the picture of what it looks like to trust in God. Where is that? Well, that's what comes beforehand in verses 4 to 9. We have the picture of a life that perfectly trusted in his Father. We have that picture in the life and thinking of the servant. He is the perfect example of trusting in God. And we're called to model our lives on him. So if you're thinking from verse 10, how do I trust in God? How do I keep going? How do I rely on him? him? But all around me there's no encouragement. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. Study his life. Look what he went through. And there we have the footsteps that we're called to tread in. So there is an instruction and there is a picture. So let's begin by thinking about what it means to trust in God. Look how we're told to trust in the name of the Lord. In particular, his name. You see, God's name cannot be detached from who he is. You see, in his very name, God is revealing himself. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh, Jehovah. And this name means that he is faithful to his covenant. So every time you see the name Lord in capital letters in your Bible, that's what it means. It's God's covenant name. It means that God is faithful to his people. He is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to do all he says. 
God remains faithful to his people. And he will fulfill the promises he has made to them. And as we seek to come and partake of the Lord's Supper tomorrow, isn't that our confidence? That God is faithful. Isn't that what the bread and the wine speak of? God's faithfulness to his people in providing that lamb to be sacrificed. It's not our faithfulness. I hope you're not coming to the table tomorrow on the foundation of your faithfulness. But rather we come not because of who we are but because of who God is and because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. God is faithful. We can trust in his name. God cannot forsake his children. He he wouldn't be God if he did. He has pledged himself to them. And if he were to turn from that, he would be inconsistent with his own character and his own name. So our salvation is as secure as long as God continues to be who he is. As long as he remains the same, our salvation is secure. Whether we feel that or not at the present time. His very name means that he is a God who can be trusted, even in darkness. His name reveals that the excellence of his character hasn't changed, even if our circumstances and our feelings change. God hasn't changed. He has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, Christian, he hasn't left you nor forsaken you. And that's true even when we can't feel him. It remains true because he has said it and his word will not be broken. And many of the promises that God has made in his word, he has made through his servants. Many of God's promises come to us directly through the lips of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to rest on Jesus' words. And what does he do? He calls sinners to come. He calls sinners to come, promising to receive any and all who do come. And he has done everything necessary so that we can come. We can come and be forgiven and cleansed and brought into the very presence of God to know him in our lives now and forevermore. We deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to be cast off from God's favourable presence forever and feel the full weight of his wrath for our sins against him. And even when we feel forsaken in this life, we haven't been. But Jesus Christ actually was. He took his people's sins to himself. And he experienced the full wrath of God for all his people's sins. And he did this so that we 
can know God and be with him forevermore. He makes those promises. And he backs up all those promises by his work at Calvary. And so in verse 4 of chapter 50, we see that that's what Jesus does. He has been given words for us. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. God, Jesus has been given the tongue of the learned for this purpose, to speak to us, to encourage his people as the great heavenly shepherd to keep his sheep going in the way of life. Christ's promises and all his assurances are true for you if you believe in him. Take him at his word. He speaks, he comforts. And that's what he does as his word is proclaimed week by week. That's what he does when we come to his table and we remember his death. He's speaking. He's nourishing us with his words so that we are equipped and strengthened to keep going in his ways. And so continuing God's promises, even when his providences seem to contradict them, keep going. Go in what God has said, not in how you feel. So who has God revealed himself to be? One who is faithful at all times. And whether you're on a mountaintop or on a, on a valley right now, God is faithful to you. And he will be faithful to you forevermore. Rely on that. Lean and rest on what he has said. You won't be let down by him. We don't rely on our experiences of God. You may have had a wonderful conversion experience. You may have had a wonderful time in your life when you felt close to God and when you were really going well. We don't rely on that. These are helpful assurances. These are times that we need that God graciously gives us. But they're not the foundation. The foundation of our assurance is not our experience, but it's what God has said in his holy word. It's what he has said through his son. So what do you do when you don't feel you trust? And you keep trusting. When it's a rainy and a cloudy day, when the sky is grey and overcast, do we conclude that the sun has been taken from the sky and it will never shine again? Of course we don't. Even when the clouds are all around, the sun is still there that hasn't gone anywhere. And we actually need those rain clouds. We need those days of rain and grayness so that our food will grow. And likewise, God nourishes us even in the times of darkness. We know he's especially there with us during these times. We need valleys to grow. Because you see, trust and faith, they are muscles that need to be exercised. 
And so we're taken out of our comfort zone. The sense of feeling is removed from us so that these muscles must come into play. And we have to keep going on what God has said, even if that's not being confirmed in the moment by our feelings. And so we have to plod on, trusting. Plod on, remembering God's excellent name. Remember his infinite perfections. Remember his unchangeable character. We're called to fear and obey him in every situation. Not just when he gives us the light. Not just when he gives us the assurance and the experiences that we want. No, we keep going in his words at all times. But of course, God hasn't just given us the instruction on how to walk in darkness, He's, which we have in verse 10. He's also given us the perfect example beforehand in verses 4 to 9. Even in this servant song, we can learn much from the life of Christ. One whose life involved so much suffering and sorrow and enduring the penalty for sin. What can we learn from Jesus' life about trusting God in the darkness? Verse 4. Keep learning. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Jesus, throughout his whole life of suffering, continued to be in the Old Testament scriptures and he was taught, he was taught of God. When you don't feel like opening your Bible, get it open. When you don't feel like coming to church, come and sit under God's word. When the darkness is all around, keep seeking him. Keep seeking to know him more, to know his word more, and to be taught of him. Verse 5. Keep obeying. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. No matter what you're going through, keep in, God's ob- keep in obedience to God. Christ's life was filled with more suffering than we will ever know. He did not sin once. He kept going perfectly in God's way. Verse 6, submit to God's providences. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus knew that this is what awaited him. He must go on that road of suffering to redeem his people. And he gave himself to it. This was God's will for him. It would be absolutely horrendous. He gives his back to the strikers. He gives his cheeks. He does not hide from it. Whatever God's plan is for you, good and bad days, give yourself to him unreservedly. Say, thy will be done. Trusting that he knows best, that his wisdom is perfect. 
he does all things well. Verses 7 to 9, keep trusting. That's what Jesus did. As he went deeper into the darkness, his confidence remained set on God. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore he set his face like a flint. He knew he would not be ashamed in the end. He knew he could go to death and commit his spirit into his father's hands, knowing that there was a joy set before him, a joy of having all his people with him one day, surrounding his throne forever and ever. Keep persevering in following him. Keep persevering in your service to him. Remembering his ministry to us and his suffering for us. And the table is another opportunity to do that. To come to remember and to be strengthened. To learn of Christ. To keep going in him. Just a word of conclusion from verse 11. After this call to obedience and a call to keep trusting A warning is given against not trusting in God. A warning is given to those who would try and create their own light. And what's the end for such people? It's to lie down and torment. For the unbeliever, don't keep going in the light of human wisdom. You think... That the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness? Do you think it's all a bit silly? A man dying on a tree to save people and give them everlasting life? Considering this to be foolishness is the way to everlasting darkness and misery. The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Turn from it. Choose the narrow way Surrender to Jesus Christ. Don't go in the light of the wisdom of this world. Don't go in the light of human reason. Take God at his word. But for the believer, it's important we don't try and create our own light as well when we're in the darkness. Don't try and fight against God's providences. Don't try and take matters into your own hands. When you're not getting the answers you want from God, don't turn to sin. Trust God. Don't be like Israel refusing to enter Canaan because it wasn't like what they thought it would be. There were giants in the land they had to conquer. Don't turn back like Israel. Don't be like Saul offering up a sacrifice because in his view Samuel was taking too long and did something that was only lawful for a priest to do don't be like Abraham marrying Sarah's handmaid to produce an heir trust God and go with what he has said now there's a lawful way to do all you can to alleviate a situation absolutely but this is Referring to resorting to unlawful ways to get relief. Don't do it. Don't try and create your own light. 
Don't turn to the light of this world. Keep going and keep obeying. It's better to walk in the Lord's darkness than in your own light. Better to walk in the Lord's darkness than in your own light. Remember that he remains unchanged in your darkness. His promises remain true for you. So take heart and keep going. And come and remember the death of his son at this time. Remember, his promises haven't changed because his character hasn't changed. Someone wisely said, Don't doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give you thanks for your word and we pray that you would inscribe your eternal truth upon our hearts this day. We pray that you would be with any here this day who are especially going through the road of suffering and we pray that you would minister to them, that you would lay your hand upon them. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to keep going on the highway to heaven, that we would continue in this way, not turning to the right or to the left, but that you would enable us as pilgrims marching to Zion to continue in your ways, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask that you would bless your word to us this day and that you would go before us now, forgiving us for our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) To conclude, we will sing Psalm 23. Psalm 23, words you know well, I'm sure. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill. For thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. My table thou hast furnished in presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint, and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me, and in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. (coughs) Psalm 23.